Welcome to All About the Questions, where learning to ask the right questions lifelong success. Now, here to help you ask all the right questions is author, international speaker, and business strategist. Good morning, afternoon, and evening, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of It's All About the Questions. Always excited to be here with you, and today I have um, a guest that I am so excited that he said to be on the show for many, many reasons. He's out in Arizona today going doing two book signings because today is the launch of his latest book. I have Brad Taylor here today, everybody, the author of the Pike Logan Thriller series. He's got his new book coming out, Operator Down, and uh, we're just going to launch right in because I'm so excited to have him here. So, Brad, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It, I, I was telling you this before uh, the show started, but I did a binge of your books um, over the last four days, five days, starting with the, the advanced copy I got of Operator Down, which, by the way, congratulations on launch day. Thank you. This is sure to be another New York Times bestseller book. It is really wonderful and so different yet fits totally beautifully inside the Pike Logan um, series of books. But I binged read your books. I got through five of them um, over the course of the last five days. So a book a day. <laughs> yeah, let's hope it's better than Game of Thrones. Better yeah. for binging. Oh, so much better. And, and what I love about binge reading book series like yours is you get the nuances of the character development. And you really, when I'm, when I'm reading your books... You get it. Like, I'm in there. I can feel the moments of what's happening. I can see how you're developing the characters. And that's not something that every author is able to do over the course of the number of books you've written. What is it about your characters that is so powerful to you? Well, actually, the characters are what matters the most to me. I mean, I write... You know, military thrillers that involve counterterrorism and that kind of stuff, all the neat widgets and things like that. But at the end of the day, uh, the characters, are what that's what everybody cares about. I mean, if I'm writing about a bomb in the middle of a parking lot and the parking lot's empty, who cares? If you care if somebody's going to get hurt. Uh, and the characters have to grow. And that actually was a, when I first started writing, I mean, I had no idea I was going to be a writer. I had, didn't know there was going to be one book, much less 12. Uh, and so I, I started to set out to consciously have these guys grow. And... Um, that turned out to be kind of false. It was a false note. And uh, I've now just kind of, people grow just by their interactions in day-to-day life. What they do every day informs how they're going to grow as a person. Uh, and I kind of just let that happen in the writing. The, the, the characters have to be, they have to move forward because that's what happens in real life. But they can't go so far forward that you don't recognize them from book to book. You know, book one, Pike's like this. Book two, he's completely different. Uh, and so it was hard. That's one of the hardest things to do. You know, I, I have a, well, you may not know this. I have a book out, but I write nonfiction. And this whole idea of carrying a character that you've created in your head through is, to me, something that, that's a true gift. Now, you are former U.S. Army, I think 20 or 21 years, right? Um, and yeah. thank you for your service, by the way. My dad was Army, so thank you. Army holds a very special place in my heart. And I just interred my dad's ashes up in New York, and we had the military honors for it. And um, oh, good. it's you know it's it's a beautiful thing. Now, you also served as part of Delta Force, which is I not did. not something that everybody does. <laughs> my, my friend no. uh, Colonel Deb Lewis 
when I was asking her if she knew you because you guys crossed in some of your operational things, she goes, no, I'd never know who he was. He was Delta Force. He's invisible. We don't know who they are. They just disappear and do their thing. How do you reconcile being somebody that had to be invisible to who you are now as um, a Brad Taylor, New York Times bestselling author? It was incredibly difficult. In fact, it still is. I, I don't like doing interviews. I mean, you spend your whole life hiding in the corner, not telling anybody what you do, and then you're supposed to get out in front of a bunch of people and talk about some book you've written. Um, it, it was hard to get over, and it's still something that I don't do near as much publicity as I should. I don't do near as much um, touting, I guess, of myself as I should. I just don't it ring. I, it leaves a bad taste in my mouth, and I just don't do it. So why write then? Because I enjoy writing. I, I've always been a voracious reader. I, I, like I said, I never intended to be a published author. I just had in the back of my head that someday I was going to write a book. Uh, and I left Fort Bragg and was teaching down at the Citadel. And it was like, it was, I mean, I literally had a ton of time on my hands. Instead of working 24-7 and getting four hours sleep, it was like a nine-to-five job teaching. I mean, it was fulfilling work, but it was just I had a lot of time on my hands. And so I said I was going to write a book and uh, to my wife. And she, of course, laughed at me. I took it to the nightstand. And um, that would be it. You know, bucket list met. And it sold. And the publisher asked if I could write another one. And I said, I think so. Um, I came out of promotion list to Colonel. My daughter was entering high school. I was supposed to go back to Bragg. Uh, I had a lot of competing things going on. And I decided to retire from the military. Right. And I know for a lot of military guys, because I've interviewed a number, including Brandon Webb, that transition moment, even when you have family or don't have family, is something that doesn't always go so smoothly. Is there one thing that you can point to that made it possible for you to make that transition? Is there a question you uh, asked yourself that helped you make that transition? No, I, I guess I've been really lucky. I've, I've, you know, I've read about that quite a bit, transitioning from the military, and I did serve close to 22 years, so it's definitely been ingrained in me. It wasn't like I did two years and got out. Um, but I do a lot of security consulting, at least I used to. I don't do near as much as I used to. Um, and so I still had my finger in the well. I still had my friends. Um, it, it honestly was not that big of a transition for me. And it may have been from the unit I came from. I was already outside the norms of, of the regular military and, you know, the usual, uh, you know, left, right, left marching type stuff. I don't know. I uh, just, when I, when I retired, I had my goal in mind and I focused wholeheartedly on my goal, which is to be a writer, uh, and just plowed right into it and I still did security consulting so I still kept my finger in the pulse and still saw people that I knew but it honestly was not that huge of a transition for me it sounds like it was time then it was just the nat- next natural transition for you no I don't know if it was just time I mean I certainly miss it don't get me wrong there was a it was a hard decision a very hard decision and uh, you know you kind of feel like a deserter to be honest with you everybody else is still in the fight and you're leaving uh, it was not an easy decision but it's just the mechanics of transitioning. It wasn't like, you know, I've read stories where you get out in the civilian world and you're staring at people, they don't understand me, and woe is me. You know, it wasn't like that. Well, I'm really glad it wasn't like that for you and for your family as well because it probably helps things there. You said, you mentioned you had a daughter? Yeah, I've got two daughters, actually. She was, my older daughter was just entering high school. And once you come out on the bird colonel list, you're really like a, what they're called a senior leader which means you're doing jobs in one year or two years at a time, which means she would have moved to at least three high schools. Uh, 
before she graduated. My wife had done the same thing because her dad was in the Air Force, and um, I didn't want to put my daughter through that. That was one of the reasons for retiring. Now, your last assignment was at the Citadel. We've heard yes. stories. Those of us who are, are not part of the military, other than through, you know, like my dad and a lot of friends that I have in it, when we think of the Citadel, we think of a place where there's a lot of regimentation and that the people who are teaching these kids are trying to help them be the next leaders of our country. Is that the reality of it? That is the aspiration of it, most assuredly. That's exactly what they're trying to do. Um, but make no mistake, get to college. I, I, I have some history at the Citadel. My father graduated from the Citadel. I have a twin brother who graduated from the Citadel. So I grew up in Citadel lore. Uh, and then I went to teach at the Citadel. And it was a, I really enjoyed it. It was a great time. It's a great school. Uh, and they certainly tried very hard to do exactly what you're saying. Um, but at the end of the day, it is a college. And they're college students. So it's the non-military version of West Point. Well, it's called a senior military college. There's actually seven of them. Uh, VMI, for instance, Norwich is another right. one. Um, Citadel. Okay. I remember reading when they had their first women to go to the Citadel and what that was like and then meeting my friend Colonel Deb Lewis, first female graduating class of West Point. And I, I read your books and there are such strong female characters in them. And when we come back from our commercial break, I'm going to want to, I'd like to explore the, how you developed those characters, but we'll be right back after this first commercial break. Success comes from not only what you know, but also who you know. Back to It's All About the Questions with award-winning author Laura Stewart. Brad, before the uh, commercial break that so rudely interrupted us, <laughs> although we got to love our commercial sponsors, they keep the radio station running, so I'm not going to complain too much. I, w- I, was ask- I was setting up this question. You have such strong female leads in your book, especially in Operator Down your latest book, which launches today and can be purchased wherever books are sold. But if you're in the listening area here in Vero Beach, go to the Vero Beach Book Center because Brad is going to be there on January 14th at 3 p.m. at the Vero Beach Book Center signing books. So um, get a copy yeah, of his sure book, will. read it, and, and be there because it's going to be so cool. Um, so you have these really strong female leads, which is not very common in the genre of books that you're writing. Where did the inspiration for this character of Jennifer and Shoshana, which, by the way, I wish I had half the the fearlessness that they have. Well, originally, uh, when I first started writing, the um, I was going to write a story of redemption, and I happened to be Special Forces, so that made Pike an operator. But if he'd have been a, a if I'd have been a policeman, he'd have been a cop. If I'd have been a priest, he'd have been taking confession. And I had in my head all along on the story of redemption that it would be a female character in the first book. Uh, and so I, when I wrote Jennifer, originally she's a you know, complete civilian, uh, doesn't know anything about what's going on as far as military goes. And so I developed her that way. And she's grown quite a bit, which it was hard to write her. I mean, if you look at the transition, I'm actually kind of embarrassed when I read One Rough Man, my first novel, because uh, she cusses like a sailor. That's the way military people do. Yep. <laughs> That's not the way you know, females do. 
And well, so I, some I had of a us lot do. of learning curve. <laughs> well, I had to, I mean, I served with people in the military, females in the military quite a bit, obviously. Uh, and so I reached out to them and, uh, boy, were they brutal. You know, it'd be one minute that she'd never do that. Give her a spine. And then I do it. And she's, what are you doing? She's not a man. And so I'd go back and forth and back and forth until I, uh, uh, got a handle on exactly how I wanted her to grow. Well, she has certainly grown. Is that similar to what you did with the Shoshana character? Because she's very different from Jennifer. Yeah, well, I'll tell you, Shoshana was uh, not, no, Shoshana was a one-off. Uh, in Days of Rage, uh, I told those two Israeli assassins in, and they were, God was going to whack them at the end of the book. That's, they were there for the specific plot that's in Days of Rage. If you read the book, you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. Yep. But at the end of the day, they were going to die, um, and that would be the end of them. And I ended up liking them too much, and so I let them live. And then uh, a couple of books later, I had a scene where I had to do something. I needed a character, and I, I mean, I could either go straight out of whole cloth, and I said to myself, no, I think I'll pull in Aaron and Trishana. They're actually in Jordan, so it fit. Right. And uh, I pulled them back in. And I got a lot of emails about them. Fans seemed to love them, so I guess my instincts were correct, because I loved them and turned out the fans did. And an operator down, this is the very first book uh, I've ever actually really set out and planned character-wise, and I set out originally saying that in this book, I'm going to bring Aaron and Shoshana back just because I like them. That was my one going-in point. Two, I wanted to make it personal, and three, I wanted to go to some place I hadn't been before. But starting off with Aaron and Shoshana, obviously, as far as the universe goes, it necks down immediately, okay, your, your ideas for plot get necked down because there's really, you've got to figure out what, how would they ever get involved here. Instead of the reverse of, I need a character, and hey, look, they just happen to fit. And you said that this is a, a departure in terms of the book development for you. Um, you typically yeah. put out two Pike Logan books a year. and I was. Okay. And this one is a departure. Can you talk yeah, us I through did, that I, process? Sure. I was, I was doing two books a year. Well, what actually happened was I was doing, uh, like I said, I was doing security consulting. So I was getting my books in basically six months early because I would look at the schedule and say, I mean, writing wasn't providing a living. I still had to feed my family. And so I would look at the schedule and say from, you know, the book says due in December, I would look at my schedule and say, well, from June to December, you're going to be gone doing consulting. You're not going to be able to write. You've got to get the book in in June. And so I did. And, uh, of course, the publisher did cheetah flips over that. But then I was saying, you know, get the book out, get the book out, because when you write about current events, uh, the problem with current events is they're current. And if you're writing the Bowcrest as tightly as I'd like to do, one thing going wrong could ruin the entire book. Uh, for instance, One Rough Man, there's a lot of Iran play in there. Back when I came out in 2011, we were rattling sabers against Iran pretty hard for the nuclear program, and there was a 50-50 chance we were going to go to war. Well, if we went to war with Iran, the whole book would be irrelevant. Um, so those kind of things happen all the time where I'm like, we've got to get this book out, because if this pops the wrong way, uh, like the insider threat, I, I, I started writing about ISIS right when they came on the scene, way before they were such a huge deal. We took over Mosul. They took over Mosul, and I, when I was writing a book, I said, you know, we've got to get this book out because if we go in and kick them out of Mosul, the book's no good. Uh, I didn't think we would. It turns out we didn't, so it worked out. But uh, when I'm writing the books, I, had to, I, I was getting them six months early, and my publisher finally got a little bit aggravated about me saying, get the book out, get the book out. And he said, okay, why don't we do, you know, you're not the only author in our stable. You're, you're lined up. For December, your book's going to sit on the shelf until December rolls around. Uh, why don't you do two books a year? And uh, I said, uh, you know, at that point, I'll, okay, I'll give it a try. Uh, but that ended up being an incredibly grueling pace because you're not doing two books a year. You're, you're 
publicizing one book, editing a second book, and starting a third book. Uh, you really, it's a grueling pace. And I still had to consulting. I still was going overseas doing the book research. Uh, and Ring of Fire, my last book, I asked, told the publisher, I said, this, I'm not going to be able to keep this pace. And keep the quality, definitely. There's no way I can keep the quality and keep the pace. And so this book went back to one book a year. How did that change the writing for you with, I mean, your research is legendary. I mean, including some crazy things that happened to you that made it into Operator Down when you decided to um, have a major part of the book happen in, um, I'm, I hope I don't slaughter it, Lesothos? It's Lesotho. It looks like Lesotho. Lesotho. Okay. You're not incorrect. I called it Lesotho until I hit the country. Okay. and learned it was called Lesotho. Lesotho, okay. It, how did, like, planning this book make a difference for your research, or didn't it? It didn't make a, a, a difference as far as uh, um, the specific steps I go through to do the research, but it did make a difference in the sense that I said, you know, I'm not going to go. I, like I said, I wanted to make it personal, and I said I'm not going to go chase uh, the whatever headlines hot today trying to predict what's going to happen with, you know, Boko Haram or ISIS or whoever. Uh, I said what I'm going to do is uh, I want to find a, a plot that would definitely be realistic, definitely be true, but not necessarily make the American news cycle, because there's tons of stuff that happens that we don't ever hear about. And so I started researching, first of all, like I said, the end point, I've got to have Israel involved somehow. Right. And so I started doing a ton of research on Israel and uh, hit upon the diamond trade, which is very big in Israel. They're the biggest diamond exchange in the world. Well, Antwerp will claim they are, but those two fight it out for the title. And so I started swimming upstream in the diamond trade, which took me into the uh, Kimberlite mines in Africa. And I had an idea, well, maybe I'll do a coup. A plot for a coup began to form. And I started looking at the countries that were over there that had the mines, and most of them that had coup potential were horrifically bad. I don't want to go visit them. Sierra Leone, things like that. I was like, I really don't want to go to that country. Well, that's scary, considering country, Special Forces, Delta Force guy, you don't want to go there. No, why would you? I mean, it's just, it's, the dump is not even fun. You know, I just didn't have any interest in going there. And I uh, hit a con on Lesotho, which actually has some of the largest gem-quality diamonds in the world come out of Lesotho. Uh, and it's its own country. It's completely, it's a microstate surrounded by South Africa. I didn't even know it existed, I'm embarrassed to say, until I did the research. Uh, it's a microstate like uh, Monaco or like the Vatican City. Um, and they produce some of the biggest uh, gem-quality diamonds in the world. And they also have a history of coups. And so that's how I came upon them. The story for me evolved differently than your other books and perhaps it's because of the difference in thought process for for writing it even reading over the weekend uh, enemy of mine widow's strike all necessary force and, and several of your other books I, they still held because i feel like we're still in those situations especially widow's strike where there's the the woman martyring herself with a bomb, but she's been turned into a viral load that can just create a pandemic in the world. This one read differently for me, and it was more thoughtful just for me when I was reading it, and the the pieces evolved a little bit differently. I, I, I'm trying to figure out how to describe it. And yeah, well, I did. Like I said, I, I, I did... Uh set out specifically is, you know, I'm going to make this personal instead of, as you said, you know, the pandemic that'll wipe out the world or um, something like that. It was just, it's a personal story. It's a, 
you're more concerned about these specific characters involved than you are concerned about what's going to happen on the world stage. Yeah, and and I liked it. It once I got past the oh wait this isn't this the same. I went wow this is a whole new level of Brad Taylor. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to I want to thank you for well, still, shaking it up. It's still got the same gunfights and certainly ends with a bang. It's just, oh my god, I was on the edge of my seat the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm sitting there in my house reading this book and like I could feel my shoulders going up and I'm like, what's going to happen next? And I just kept turning the page after page after page. Like I got to know what happens to Aaron and Shoshana and, and Pike and, and everybody. So yeah, totally holds up and it's a page turner. I read it in, um, in about seven hours. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I speed read, but I, I actually slowed myself down to read this because I, I needed to slow it down for myself. It's probably the only way I could have gotten through five of your books this weekend because I needed to go back to the original books just to have them on top of my head for the interview today. And we're going to go into the national news, and we'll be back with Brad Taylor, who's going to be here in Vero Beach in town January 14th at 3 p.m. at the Vero Beach Book Center. And when we come back from the, the news break, we're going to talk more about his latest book, Operator Down. Welcome to It's All About the Questions, where learning to ask the right questions can help you achieve lifelong success. Now, here to help you ask all the right questions is award-winning author, international speaker, and business strategist, Laura Stewart. Welcome back, everyone. I am here with Brad Taylor, New York Times bestselling author, on launch day of his new Pike Low Thriller, Operator Down, which I'm going to give five stars to. I got an advanced copy of this book, and I, I read it in about seven hours, and it's about 500 pages, and I could not put this book down. It is amazing. I highly encourage everybody to go out there and buy it. He's going to be here in town in Vero Beach, for those of you who are listening to me live on iHeartRadio. For those listening in 60 countries around the world um, on the podcast recording portion of this, um, you're probably going to miss the January 14th book signing in Vero Beach, but I encourage you to get the book on Amazon or, or wherever books are sold because it's, it's so great. So, Brad, thanks again for, for being here with me. Thank you for having me. I'm enjoying it. Good. Cool. So I know I said that Operator Down is different than the other books, and, and it is, but it isn't. It, it is different in that it's not necessarily something that's ripped from the headlines that we know about. Right. But when I felt right. like I'm reading it, I went, oh, this is the stuff they don't tell us. That we're not privy well, I, to. <laughs> uh, well, no. I, I, like I said, uh, I guess the closest comparison to it would be No Fortunate Son. Um, with the stakes in the, uh, uh, the plot line itself. Now, I, I, if you, most of the stories that, you know, when I have a book that hits the uh, stands and then everybody's like, oh, Brad's depression. For instance, um, in Days of Rage, I had Boko Haram. Nobody ever heard of Boko Haram. Uh, and the book came out, and then they kidnapped all the kids, and everybody's like, oh, look at Brad. He knows, you know, he's, he's ripping the headlines. Well, the truth of the matter is, Boko Haram's been lopping off heads since 2009, and a lot of people know about Boko Haram, just not the average American. Uh, and so I was looking for a story kind of like that, not necessarily something that would make the news, but it would certainly make the news in that local area. Uh, for instance, in South Africa, if there was a coup in Lesotho, make no mistake, that would be major news. Uh, but it probably wouldn't make the headlines in the United States. Well, there's a lot, I think, that doesn't make the headlines in the United States that we kind of would like to know about. 
for you with the worlds that you've traveled in, you see and hear things that the average person in the world would never have access to, or if they did, wouldn't even understand the significance of it. Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't go so far as that they wouldn't understand. It's just, it, I have a, I spend about literally two hours every morning going through news feeds, and I've cultivated news feeds from all over the world. Um, there's a lot of good information out there. Uh, it's just hard to, to sort through the good information versus the bad information. Um, and once again, I, I do this security consulting, and so you, you know, you bump into people and talk to them about what's going on. Now, on your your bio, when I was re- you have several different bios all over the place, um, you know, on the web, in the back of your books, and it was interesting to me. So you have uh, an advanced degree from the Naval Warfare College in irregular warfare. You're a security consultant in asymmetric threats. I, I read those words and I go, well, isn't all warfare irregular? And, uh, no, not at all. Okay. What? It's basically, the, and, uh, asymmetric threats, asymmetric warfare is, is basically what we're looking at with North Korea. Force on force. They've got artillery, we've got artillery. They've got tanks, we've got tanks. They've got infantry, we've got infantry. Asymmetric threat is what we're fighting in um, Syria and uh Iraq and that kind of place. We, well, we did Desert Storm, uh, and it was predicted to be this three-month slog fest with 8,000 casualties, and it ended in four days with the uh, United States basically crushing the fourth largest army in the world. Uh, the whole world took notice, and make no mistake, what they noticed was, you're not going to defeat the United States force on force. We've got to find another way. And every other country started looking at that. Okay, so if every other country started looking at the ways to make it so that force on force didn't work. What would you say is something that the average individual needs to begin thinking about to protect themselves or to keep themselves a little bit more present in the world to, um, well, you could, if you just look at the world stage, for instance, Ukraine, uh, Ukraine was hybrid warfare. That was an asymmetric fight. Um, there was an enormous information uh, dominance that went on as far as uh, uh, propaganda and stuff inside Ukraine. Uh, the Crimea was all the, the, the soldiers that went in there was a popular uprising and all this kind of stuff. We find out later that Russia had actually infiltrated Spetsnaz, their version of special forces, into um, Ukraine and started fighting. And all that stuff is that's asymmetric. He didn't roll in with tanks. He took that country over uh, subliminally, basically. And now there's all the cyber terrorism threats exactly yeah i I remember reading i don't remember if it was a vince flynn or tom clancy book a number of years ago where they talked about china basically doing financial warfare on the united states and your books are, are to me you wrap a lot of those same concepts that it's not just i guess now and with i have the terms now it's not just force on force anymore. There's all these other layers to it. Yeah, in the Polaris Protocol, I looked at the GPS constellation because I was astounded at how much the GPS constellation runs our life. People look at GPS as, as a location service you have in your car. It tells me where I'm going. Well, it turns out that the way that GPS functions is on a timing mechanism. It's, the timing is so precise. It's the most precise timing in the world. Uh, and it's got these signals. That's how it tells you where you are. Three of them sending out these signals. And when the signals bounce back to the satellite, they get a timestamp. When they adjudicate the timestamp between three signals, they know where you are. Well, because of that, because the timing is so precise, we use GPS in things you wouldn't even believe. 
your gas pump, when you run your credit card, it's, it's using GPS signals to do the timing for the stamp on your credit card. Uh, cell phones use the same timing. When, they, when you talk on a cell phone, I'm talking to you right now, and you can clearly hear me. But when I go over the cell network, my voice is broken up into a thousand different pieces and put back together on the far end. Those thousand different pieces are all timed by the GPS. If we lost GPS, it would be horrendously bad, and not just because we couldn't drop a missile. I have all these thoughts going through my head, including for weird reason, I had flashbacks to Charlie and the Chocolate Factory when Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory when he particulated that kid across the, the TV and then Star Trek with the transporters, that this whole concept of GPS that you just completely shifted for me is a massive key to how we live the world today. And I never thought of it. It's just how you got from yeah. place to place. Yeah, the good thing about it is, uh, you know, people talk about spending money on the military. Obviously, I'm a big proponent of spending money on the military, not wasting money, don't get me wrong, but spending money on R&D. A lot of the functions in the modern-day world that we take for granted came from military applications. Um, I mean, the basis thing, believe it or not, Chicken McNuggets came from the military trying to figure out how to put food out in a package that would stay stable so they could eat in the field. <laughs> so it's like meals ready to eat, MREs? That's what it is now, yeah. This, that was way back when, but they, um, a lot of the military technology that comes out, well, for instance, this is a little-known fact, your drive through the reason you have a drive through in every McDonald's in the world is because of the military. Because one McDonald's in California, they, because the military has all kinds of rules, you are not allowed to eat inside the restaurant, any restaurant, in uniform. So if you want to eat outside during lunch, you have to change uniform. So McDonald's said, well, I'll tell you what, we'll give you the food right there in your car. And the drive-in was born. Wow, that is so cool. I didn't know that. Yeah. What other fascinating facts do you have that we don't know, Brad? <laughs> I don't know. It's going to take a while, but there's a few of them. <laughs> okay, let, let's... Well, uh, yeah, actually, uh, just the biggest one, obviously, is the Internet. That was done by the Navy, DARPA. Yeah, I, I'm a geek. I owned a, a tech services company. We did cybersecurity stuff and everything, so I'm, I'm a huge uh, thank God for DARPA. <laughs> made my life easier and more complicated from the days I had my tech company. And if it wasn't for DARPA, for, there wouldn't be cyber threats, right? Right. So, well, we wouldn't have the Internet. We wouldn't, there's always a good and bad. Yeah. Yin and yang. I remember the days when all computers were air-gapped, meaning they didn't have a connection to the Internet. <laughs> yeah. I had a, when I was in college, I had an uh, Apple IIe that I had to get a uh, waiver from my college to allow me to turn in a dot matrix printer instead of a typewritten page. Yeah, because it was like you just, that, that wasn't done. You just didn't do it. Right. All right, so your new book, Operator Down, there is an interrogation scene in the beginning of the book. Yes. <laughs> that when I was doing some research, heard that really happened to you while you were researching the book. Are you willing to share? Yeah, sure. I was an idiot. That was really <laughs> stupid. So I like doing, like I said, on-the-ground research. And um, I'd already been to Cape Town and uh, Joburg, Johannesburg, and uh, Israel. And I was going to Lesotho. And the book is obviously about a coup in Lesotho. So I met my guide and uh, told her what I wanted to do. Uh, and I said I was writing a book. I didn't tell her what it was about because I don't want to scare her away. But I wanted to see all these sites. So we went around to see them all. And I didn't do anything touristy. I was taking pictures of... Uh, I mean, Masura, the capital there, is basically the entire country. Every other thing is just a village. There's nothing there. So if you could take over that city, you would take over the country for all practical purposes. 
and there's certain key pieces in this single points of failure in that city that I'd done the research on that I wanted to go find because I was going to write about them in the book. So I took pictures of Parliament, the Prime Minister's residence, the police station, the radio station, TV station, the Internet hub, that kind of stuff. And I wanted to figure out where the Special Forces base was because it's impossible. You can't find that on Google. And so the guy took me there, and I went to the front gate and uh, was at, eliciting information from the guy at the front gate. First I tried to get on. He wouldn't let me on. Um, and so my guy said, well, we'll drive over here. You can look at it from the hill over here. And so we did. And I saw a guy walking the fence line. I went up there and talked to him. Like an idiot said, I'm, I used to be in the military and uh, started asking questions. And another guy ran up and he went crazy on the cell phone. And the next thing I knew, uh, two SUVs pulled up and threw me in the back and drove me on the base. And the next thing you know, I got interrogated for six and a half hours of being an American spy. <laughs> Wasn't very pleasant. I, I, I'm speechless because you say it just sort of nonchalantly and to the... Well, it was pretty... I, that was really stupid. I mean, I did what I could to uh, sterilize myself. You know, I stuck my camera underneath the seat and hit it and everything I could, clean pockets, what I could do. And I went in there and just said I was a tourist. I didn't want them to Google my bio. That would have been the end of the days for me. If they'd seen my bio, they'd have been convinced I was a spy. Right. And they, uh, um, they found the camera, brought it in, and sure enough, there's no tourist pictures on it. There's a prime minister's picture of his residence has a sign in it that says no photos. <laughs> it's on my camera. And uh, they went crazy. Well, uh, what I didn't understand at the time, uh, I had done my research on they'd had a, a semi-coup, pseudo-coup in 2014. And the argument going on was the prime minister, the head of the LDF, was uh, he'd been around forever and was building a huge power base. And the prime minister was afraid that this guy was going to take over the country. And so he demanded he retire. This is 2014. The head of the LDF, his three-star general, said, I'm not going to retire. So they had this little fight. So the prime minister said, that's fine. Then I'll just appoint somebody else ahead, and you can just keep your army paycheck, but you're no longer in charge of the LDF. Well, two weeks later, that new guy was found underneath the bridge dead. And then the prime minister and, and all the members of parliament fled the country, went to Johannesburg, claiming their lives were threatened. And that was kind of the end of the story for me. And that's where uh, we're going to go into the last commercial break. <laughs> we'll be right back with more from Brad Taylor. Success comes from not only what you know, but also who you know. Welcome back to It's All About the Questions with award-winning author Laura Stewart. Hard to believe the show is almost over. It just goes way too fast. So, Brad, you were saying that uh, we were talking about the actual interrogation you went through and, and how it played out. And then you last thing you said was that was the end of the story for me. That was the end of the story that I knew. Well, it okay. turned out that, that this was 2014. This is now 2017, and the head of the LDF had retired a week before I hit the country. And he'd done so because the U U.S. ambassador and U.S. embassy had generated enormous pressure withholding funds and things like that. So two things came into play there. One, this was still a sore wound, and two, they hated the U.S. Uh, and they were convinced that I was some kind of spy for the U.S. And the third thing I found out was there was a Special Forces security assessment team that had landed uh, at the embassy, I, and he, they were convinced I was part of that team doing some kind of nefarious stuff to overthrow the LDF. <laughs> I didn't know any of that stuff when I hit the ground, and I learned quite a bit while I was under interrogation. Yeah, they weren't that good. It was, it was a little bit. They, uh, I mean, they did. So I recognize most of the techniques they used, but they had, they did things that they, uh, it, it would have been a, a lot worse. Uh, for instance, my phone had a lot of incriminating stuff on it, um, and they didn't make me unlock it because I told them I didn't have any service. So that was kind of a mistake on their part. They didn't search my pockets. I had some incriminating stuff in my pockets. So all in all, I was pretty lucky. 
and you got some great, great material for your book. Yeah, definitely. I'm glad that you made it out okay and, and that your driver and everybody was okay as well. Um, that's that's the reality, I guess, of being an American traveling somewhere. And it, No, actually, it was, uh, I mean, I was stupid, number one. I could, there's, there's a hundred different things I could have done that would have gotten me out of there a lot quicker. If I'd have taken one-for-one -one pictures of touristy stuff, for instance, it would have been a lot better. Okay. Um, but the fact that I was a U.S. citizen, I knew held weight. I mean, there was, uh, I, I was debating whether to ask for the embassy. I knew they hated the embassy so much, so I stayed away from that. But at the very end, I was like, okay, I've had enough of this. I'm going to ask for the embassy. Uh, and that's when they let me go before I even got the words out of my mouth. I got a big speech by the commander came in, and uh, just as it plays out in the book, commander came in, gave me a big speech, and I realized he really does think I'm an SF spy, and he thinks I'm going to go back to the ambassador and give him this speech. It's all about American relations and things like this. Um, and then they let me go. It, it was riveting the reading. Thing, though, well, the funniest thing was, it's not in the book, when I flew out of Lesotho, they had interrogator, the frog, which is in the book, um, he got on my plane. Like, really? Holy moly, they're going to jerk me off the plane. <laughs> when he got on the plane, it's a little bitty single-seater puddle jumper type thing, you know, seat on the left, seat on the right. So it's not like it's you're going to hide from him. And uh, he got on locked eyes with me. I saw his eyes go comically wide, and I thought, oh, he doesn't know I'm on this plane. And he's doing something he shouldn't be doing because now he's in civilian clothes and stuff. I said, I should make the scene right now. I should get him in trouble. <laughs> of course I didn't. I got off the plane as soon as we landed in Joburg and ran away. <laughs> yeah, why, why make more trouble than, than you have to? With the world today and, and how it looks and what we're seeing in the United States and, and all the threats, you've got 20-plus years of experience in, in the military and you do security consulting. I'd love to ask you this question and hopefully you'll answer it. What would you do to change things? If you could change something in the world, what would you do? Uh, you mean if I could change something holistically? If I could, if I could wave a wand right now, I would change the uh, Saudi Arabian spreadable hobbyism. That would be the number one thing I would do. Do you have any ideas on how and that would be done? Well, MSP, the new deputy crown prince, is doing it right now. Hopefully, I mean he's doing a lot of different uh, initiatives: female driving, cracking down religious police, stopping the clerics from. Uh, basically, Saudi Arabia made a deal with the devil way back when. Um, in order to remain in power, the House of Al-Sad remain in power, gave the clerics enormous leeway to do what they wanted. And then to keep the clerics happy, they spread the Wahhabism throughout the world, funding, uh, basically, they'd go to a country like Morocco and say, we'll build all your mosques for you because we love you, except you're going to have to have our clerics. And so Wahhabism started spreading, and it's a virulent strain that's caused enormous problems. So what can we do as an average person to try to help that shift? Or can't we? There's nothing uh, we can do. I don't know. There's not a whole lot we can do. We can certainly do things. Um, I mean, everybody's afraid. You know, you see there's a lot of, I'm afraid of Muslims, this and that and the other thing. And saying you're afraid of a Muslim is kind of like saying you're afraid of a Christian. I mean, there's a bazillion different sects and a bazillion different thoughts of how they do things. And we like to paint them with a broad brush, which feeds the narrative of uh, uh, jihadists. And that's hard. To, you know, you can't break that cycle. I understand I mean, every time you found, you know, John Wayne Gacy killed somebody, if every time you found, went to a serial killer, you found Pogo the Clown stuff, you wouldn't want to hire a clown to come to your birthday party anymore. Right. So, I mean, I understand that. But uh, it's, um, that's what I would do. I would 
stop the spread of that. Okay, so what we can all do now is just look at each person as a person and treat them yeah, exactly. like a person and not a category, a stereotype right. category. Right. I mean, we have, as Americans, we have the ability to discern a uh, guy that gets up in a Las Vegas tower and kills everybody at a rock concert. We don't immediately then broad bus paint everybody that has a beard and is a Caucasian as a killer. But we lose that ability when it comes to uh, terrorism. Well, your new book launches today, uh, new Pike Logan Thriller, Operator Down, and people can get it where? They can get it anywhere. Uh, It's all major bookstores, Amazon, all over. If they want to read an excerpt, they can go to my uh, website, breadtitherbooks.com. They can read an excerpt just about, actually, about every book I've written. Yeah, it's a great website, by the way. And I, I went to Amazon just for the heck of it while we were on one of the breaks, and you're already a best-selling. This book is already um, a national bestseller on Amazon. Oh, good. Which, Glad to hear it. I haven't checked yet. Yeah, yeah. You, um, you're trending in three categories <laughs> on, oh, on Amazon. Good. You're doing really, really well. And I hit some international sites, and you're beginning to trend on those sites as well. <laughs> oh, so I'm great to hear. Fully expecting by tomorrow we'll hear New York Times and all of that other stuff for this this new wonderful book. That actually that'll take a week. Yeah, they, I, they I cultivate know. Cultivate a full week's worth of data. Yeah, um, which a week is so quickly nowadays in this world. And you're going to be here on January 14th at the Vero Beach Book Center at 3 p.m. And I know the books are available there, and we're really looking forward to having you um, here in town with us. Yeah, I really enjoyed Real Beach. It's a great site. Last words you'd like to share with my listeners? I uh, just hope they enjoy the book. That's the main reason I write. Is to, it's the reader who gets a thrill ride who really enjoys. Yeah, I mean, your books are truly exceptional books, and I, I recommend everybody go binge read them because it's way better than just binge watching Netflix or uh, Game of Thrones or any of those TV things because you paint, Brad, such an amazing picture of your characters and the situations that they're in that to me the tv of my brain reading your books is so much better than the actual tv well, thank you very much it's a high compliment i appreciate it oh you're welcome and it's a joy having you on the show today and i'm looking forward to meeting you next week when you come into town good luck with this incredible book tour you're doing in arizona um, the, today, and then you're going to Houston, Texas, the 10th, since I have people listening around the world. You can catch them in Houston on January 10th, St. Louis, January 11th, Minneapolis, the 12th, Virginia, the 13th. I hope you get some okay weather when you're doing some of these, Brad, because there's some snowstorms coming through. I know. I'm worried about that, to be honest with you. Yeah. We'll um, I wish you nothing but the best uh, success with the newest book and whatever your next one is that you're writing. Thanks for, so much for being here on the show today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I enjoyed it. Everybody, grab a copy of Operator Down. I love it. I'm going to give it a five-star review. You know I don't give those out just for anybody. And I'm actually going to post a review up on Amazon and a few other places. I think it's a great book. Worth the read. Um Remember, everybody, the right questions truly can change your life. So what are you asking today? Don't forget, hug someone you love. Have a great day, everyone. You've been listening to It's All About the Questions, starring Laura Stewart. Connect with Laura at itsallaboutthequestions.com and download a free workbook that will help you ask better questions starting today. 